Hey everyone, welcome back. The last time that Tom and I sat down to do a podcast, we talked about where we wanted to start. And we ended up going along with the foundations of what social-emotional learning is. And we did that as part of a natural progression so that we could move into the next topic that we want to talk about, which is building a classroom community. Which, when you think about it, is really the fundamental start of where you're going to implement this as an educator. Now, we've taken a look at what that looks like, and there are three really big components of that. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask Tom just to talk about what those three parts are, and then we'll start to discuss what that first one is in today's podcast. Mike, it's great to be with you again. Thanks for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Of course. I really do. Uh, when we talk about building a classroom community and social-emotional learning, they are intimately intertwined. So as we shared in our first podcast, social-emotional learning is the great big research umbrella of, that includes all the practices to be a good, responsible, respectful human being in healthy relationships with others. And when we bring that into the school environment, the school building, and most specifically and most impactfully in the school classroom, counseling room, nursing room, team wherever I have an adult in a leadership, mentoring, and educational role with students, that has the most impact on their lives. So we know that to impact children, to motivate them, to help them with their learning, not only academically and cognitively, but also socially and emotionally, the most important player in that school experience is the teacher. What's interesting the most important person in that school experience, socially and emotionally, are their peers. So in the classroom, we build that community together. The teacher, leader, mentor, along with all of those students working together in a safe environment. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to make really clear the three levels of what that community looks like. And they really are developmental levels. So... You and I, having studied our favorite individual developmental theorist, it may have been Piaget, it may have been Kohlberg's Moral Stages of Human Development. For me, my favorite was Eric Erickson and his Stages of Human Growth and Development because Erickson always gave us a negotiation. You know, birth to 18 months is trust versus mistrust and so forth and so on until you you get to the, you know, the place where I'm at in my life, you know, negotiating... Uh, is my passion still here? And it certainly is. Or sometimes people my age are starting to, to wane and fade and not be that committed to life. Well, just as there are predictable stages for our children, as we watch them from birth to, to death, there are also predictable stages for a classroom or a school building's development. This would also apply to any organized team or group that has a common mission and vision. So in this community, we first need to ask ourselves, who are we? And how do we come together? The word community literally means a unified or a connected group of people. So think of that first day of school. Uh, I come in to remind me, you're teaching a K-5 to environment? Yeah, K-5. Okay. So in those K-5 to classrooms, 
Sometimes I know some other people in that first day of school. Sometimes I don't. I absolutely don't know my teacher, mentor, leader. So it's what, it's what the literature refers to as the polite stage. Meaning I hope everybody's polite. And it also means that there's not a lot of self-disclosure. There's not a lot of trust. There's not a lot of connection. So that first day of school and many school districts in our region of southeastern Pennsylvania are literally taking the first week or two and their curriculum is community building. Get acquainted activities, a lot of parent share, small group activities, scaven human treasure hunts, human scavenger hunts, scavenger hunts, people really connecting to each other. It's not that the curriculum, the academic curriculum is secondary. It's just that we're really, really clear today that the social emotional comes before the academic. Uh, so for example, Jim Comer, Dr. James Comer at Yale University said explicitly, there is no cognitive learning without first a significant relationship. That, that's one of the most powerful things I've ever learned in my, heard in my life. We as human animals are designed to connect social and emotionally. We're designed to find, all the way back to that prehistoric brain, this place is safe emotionally. This place is safe physically. This place is safe psychologically before I go into my neocortex and really engage cognitively and academically. So everything we need to do in those first days and I believe weeks of school are about building community and allowing people in that polite stage to feel comfortable, to feel connected. In the, uh, in the second stage, in this predictable stages of, of growth and development, the, uh, the next stage is, why am I here? So I'm comfortable now as a student. I'm comfortable as a learner. Uh, I feel connected to a few, if not many. I feel some level of comfort and maybe even trust with my teacher. So what am I doing here? Now it's time for our curriculum. Now it's time for our limits and boundaries. Now it's time for our safe classroom environment. Now it's time for our dreams and our future absolutely connected to our content. Now it's time for every passionate teacher who loves their content, loves their subject area, to bring it alive in the children's lives. And when I say that, bring it alive, so Willard Daggett has this concept called rigor, relevance, and relationship. And in my experience, schools are really, really passionate about the rigor part. And that's great. I'm glad. That's wonderful. However, what we now know, I can never be successful bringing my learners, my students, to a rigorous academic educational experience without the curriculum, the content, why am I here, what are we doing, without it being relevant to my life. So here I have a fifth grade social studies curriculum. I'm a fifth grader in Lower Merion. I'm a fifth grader in Pottstown. 
I'm a fifth grader in Norristown. I'm a fifth grader in North Philadelphia. That curriculum must be very different in those environments. As a teacher, I need to make it relevant to my student's life. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that what you say has a lot of merit in the sense that that's pushed in a way in a lot of school settings. I know uh, going all the way through Temple University mm -hmm. that one of the biggest thing was those real world connections. And that's kind of the, the moniker that they put on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of times as teachers, we think, what is, why are we doing this for our kids? And we have this far sightedness to it. Why are you learning division? Someday you're going to have to, you know, not anymore. You're not going to have to balance your checkbook right. with technology, <laughs> but you are going to have to use that in certain aspects of your adult life. And I think that's where a lot of people gravitate to, but they don't think of the immediate relevance that this has to do. Um, for instance, you know, you talk about social studies. Mm -hmm. If you're learning about American history and, you know, why George Washington made the decisions that he did, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's something very high level, like he's an adult making adult choices, so forth and so on. But there's no reason you can't connect that emotionally to what these kids are dealing with every day mm -hmm. in their school environment. Mm -hmm. And I think, for me at least, when I made that shift from making a real-world connection to how it's going to benefit their future and making them successful, which is you know what we want them to do sure. in school, and thinking more about like why does this matter to you right now? And I think that that resonates a lot more with them. And that's, you know, one of those ways that you're able to integrate a lot of those conversations. So when you talk about real-world experience, that's Daggett's idea of relevance. Now, for me, and, and the social-emotional research, which we talked about in the first podcast, really reinforces this. My content has a better chance of being relevant if I, as the instructor, have a relationship with each of my students. So we take this pyramid of rigor, relevance, and relationship in this hierarchical process, and we flip it on its head in building a classroom community. It's relationship building first. Hence the first day, first couple of weeks of school, all community building activities. Then how's my curriculum relevant? Why am I here? It connects to my life. Now the subject's important to me. I can understand why George Washington and his choices are important to my life. And now I can be more rigorous. I want to be involved. So um, Daniel Pink, uh, in his book Drive, around motivating our students and, and motivating human beings, really talked about relevance being key. And, and relationship being key to making things more relevant. Um, the next stage in this developmental process in Charre is, is the researcher behind what we're talking about now. He originally called this third stage bid for power. So polite stage, then why are we here, and then bid for power. Uh, I've, I've worked with this concept since 1972. I don't like the, the title of that stage. It really confuses people and misinforms people. They see a struggle going on. So in, in his work, in his research, I've, I've redefined it. I call it shared leadership. That's really what we want now. We're now inviting our students, and in your elementary school, every classroom you're in, 
Every kid has a job, yes? Yes. Perfect. That's what we're talking about. And if you want me to invest my time and energy, whether I'm a kindergarten student, a fifth grade student, or a 55-year-old man, tell me what my job is. What's my responsibility? How are you going to engage me? That motivates me. That allows me to tap into the intrinsic value of my life. And, and until I am intrinsically connected, this is meaningful to me, I'm not going to give you very much. No greatness in, in humanity, whether it be this technology we're using today, whether the computer, whether it's your smartwatch, whatever it might be, no greatness ever comes from, from somebody simply, uh, well, I'm just going to do my job. No, it comes from complete investment. And, and they're excited and passionate about that. And that's the one for our children. And it starts with responsibility and having a part to play and knowing that my part to play in the classroom is meaningful. It's meaningful to my teacher because all human beings want approval. It's meaning to my peers. I'm a part, I'm a part in this community. I, I play a role. I'm a cog. And it's most importantly, meaningful to me. So it's really nice to find out what my students' skills and talents and multiple intelligences are when I go to give a job in a classroom or maybe invite them for a job. For example, you're not going to give a job that has to do with linguistics to your dyslexic student. But you might give a job, knowing my youngest son being dyslexic, you might give a job to my youngest son that has to do with hands-on tactile skills because he's brilliant at that. So again, know our classroom. The, the fourth stage is when things get, for me, very, very exciting, the construction stage. So imagine that time in your school year. I'd love to hear from you on this. When you can start to look at that classroom, look at the behaviors, look at the investment, look at the academic strengths and social, emotional, and academic skills that have been developed where you know that we finally have built something together. When you're starting to be competent as a teacher, not that the job's over, but, yep, I have a class now. We pretty much like each other. We know our norms. We come in every day and everybody starts to get to work. And, and I'm more a facilitator that I am a director. I'm more of a guide on the side than I am the sage on the stage. When do you have a sense that that happens in the classrooms, in the buildings that you work with? Um, I think it varies uh, pretty significantly, for me at least. I know uh, for this year, it being my first experience in uh, more of a supplemental role, where I have students with me in my classroom for a majority of the day. It's been a completely new experience for me. Typically, I've been going into classrooms and co-teaching, where I have a strong teacher in there who's establishing classroom routines, and I get to fit into that and then also reinforce and kind of help with that. But it's, it's definitely one of those co-teaching models where, you know, there's definitely one person who's kind of guiding the way, and then there's that supportive person. Mm-hmm. This year, I've gotten to create all of my own routines. I've been able to establish the different things that are important to me and what I really emphasize when mm -hmm. I'm working mm -hmm. with kids or correcting them. Mm -hmm. And I think 
just about now, so I'm about six weeks in, mm-hmm. I think now is where I'm starting to have those moments where like things just kind of move the way they're supposed to. Nice. So I had students come in to me who've had the same teacher for several years. Mm-hmm. So they come in not expecting a new teacher, a new routine, a new classroom, but hey, we're going to continue what we did last year. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of continuity in special ed in that respect. Fantastic. So I came in and suddenly everything's different. And this, what I'm telling you now, wasn't a conscious thought of mine mm-hmm. on the first day of school. Okay. It was more like, what's going on? Why isn't this working? Um, but I really had to kind of take a step back and just say, hey guys, we're all here. We're here for a year together. Let's start to get to know each other. And it was kind of like I tried to jump that stage a little bit and kind of move past that. And it just went so poorly that like I had to like rein myself in and go back and be like, guys, this is where we're going to start. I'm so glad you did that. You had the awareness that they weren't with you. See, they, they, they didn't have an opportunity to share your dream yet. You didn't invite them in the creation of the vision yet. And, and the routines are perfect. You mentioned routines about four times as you were speaking. Mm-hmm. And that's perfect. Routines are part of that buy-in process. Routines are part of their, their identification of their skills and sta- talents and strengths. But you were very wise to backtrack, okay, I've got to invest my, my, my students. I have to invest in building a community before I can get to my vision. And, and that and, and that was successful for you, yes? Yes. Fantastic. So that was probably the first two weeks of school. Good. I spent just, just on getting to know them and then get to know me. So happy to hear that. Um, and then I jumped into the routines. And there was there was kickback mm-hmm. um, with like, you know, this is how our class is going to be structured. So there's bid for power that I choose to call shared leadership. Yeah, so the bid normal. for power. I'm glad you brought that up yep. just because of the fact that I didn't, I didn't take it as this massive struggle. Because right. anytime I think of power, I think of responsibility. Good for you. So I make that connection and I think, all right, I want my kids to have responsibility in the classroom because at the end of the day, it's going to be wonderful for them to take ownership of what they're doing. And for me, if I'm able to release some of that responsibility, that frees me up to work on other things that, you know, yeah. to, to just enrich the classroom. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I think, where the most struggle comes in because... A lot of students, and I don't want to stereotype, mm-hmm. but they kind of want to be, you know, like told what to do. Sure. And then when you give them that idea of responsibility, I feel like they associate that pretty freely with freedom. And I get to make decisions and do what I want. Mm. So maintaining that structure, but releasing responsibility is such like a, a almost like a seesaw yeah. that goes back and forth. Can we talk about that for a minute? Absolutely. Because you just hit on an important issue in this place we call America. Freedom and responsibility are tied together. They're tied together. They're intimately tied together. So we have, we have a Bill of Rights, which is a gorgeous document that very few people have ever read. With every right that a human being has, there is a, a connecting responsibility. Freedom is not just, I'm going to do my thing, only my thing, the heck with you. Freedom is built on my rights and the responsibilities that go along with those rights. That's a healthy human being. That, I hope, is a healthy America. Now, you know, we, we struggle with that constantly. We've struggled with that as a country. We're still struggling with that today. But there's a perfect entree 
to teach an essential social studies lesson in your classroom because you're doing it right now. You're creating your country. It's, it's, called, it's called your classroom. It's, it's the exact same principles that this country was founded on. So I'm really grateful you brought that up. When we, when we move through these stages that we're talking about now, first polite, then why are we here, shared leadership, the construction stage, which you're, which you're really talking about, you're starting to sense six weeks in, you're feeling that, that the students are bought into this process. They have their responsibilities, they have their rights, they have their routines, and you're, you're guiding more. That's a long stage. We hope that stage moves well throughout the school year. We have some challenges with that stage. They're called vacations and school breaks. Any break disrupts this process. So here you are moving close as you're just starting to build construction. You're just starting to build unity, classroom community. And we're going to have Thanksgiving. That's, that's a, a long uh, a long weekend, at least four days in many places. We need to come back and reintroduce all of our basics again, get students reinvested. Then we have holiday break, winter break, whatever you may call it. That could be a week or more in some places. In some independent and private schools I work with, that could be two, three, four weeks you almost need to start from scratch again to reiterate all your community building activities like your first two weeks of school. Why are we here? What's the relevance of this topic, this content, this curriculum in my life? As I begin to begin rigorous, we can't just come back from holiday breaks or, 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 um, or, or even weekends sometimes, extended weekends, and let, let's just get right to it again. No. These are human beings. Stuff just happened to them. And for some of your children, not very nice stuff just happened to them. You know, when you and I sat down to a fantastic Thanksgiving dinner, some didn't have that. Some of them are in their rooms, locked in their rooms to be safe. Some of them were in their rooms all night crying because they didn't have food. Some are on the street. You know all these children. So when I come back to my classroom community, I've got to know that my teachers, the still same, safe, caring, dedicated, loving adult that I counted on for the first three months of school. So I need to rebuild that community again. And as I do that, I get back into my construction stage. And then I come to something that doesn't happen in every classroom. It's the fifth and final stage in this process of classroom community development. It's called the spirit stage. You know you're there when you don't want the class to end. You know you've reached the spirit stage where there's a lot of synergy. One plus one doesn't equal two. You leap beyond mathematics. The classroom's innovative. Projects are sailing along. Students are creative. Lots of folks are volunteering. Students have grown socially, emotionally, behaviorally, academically. 
They're being creative. They're being innovative. They're taking chances. They're taking risks, appropriate academic risks. They're not afraid. They trust you. They trust each other. They trust themselves. And when that has happened in my life, it's not always happened. It has happened in classrooms for me. It has happened in counseling settings for me. It has happened one or two times where I've been a coach. And I'm blessed that it happens in our master's degree program in almost every class we teach. I know I'm there when I'm really sad to say goodbye. I know we've reached the spirit stage when people don't want it to end. I know we've reached the spirit stage when students, be they children or be they now adults, say, how do we keep this going? How can we keep meeting together? That's the spirit stage. Does that make sense? It does. And I think when people hear that, they're going to, they're sitting there and they're going to nod their head and they're going to say, yeah, I want that. Yeah. Yeah. That needs to happen. See, as a teacher, that's what woke me up every morning. So now as a 64 year old man, when I'm teaching classes at eight o'clock on Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I got to, I'm completely honest with you, Michael, my body doesn't want to wake up. I don't want to wake up at (laughs) six 30 on a Saturday morning. And I'm sure those 30 students don't want to wake up at six 30 on a Saturday morning because you've just taught all week. It's true. And after this intensive eight hours on a Saturday, intensive eight hours on a Sunday, you're going back and you're going to teach again. Plus doing all your graduate course homework over the course of, of uh, you know, four or five, six weeks. However, the spirit calls us. And I literally mean that. The spirit calls us. What, what, whether you call it your conscious whether I, I call it the, the still small voice that speaks inside of me, that thing that keeps beckoning me, get up. Somebody's waiting for you. Do your best today. It's okay to be tired. You're an old man. It's all right. But show up. Show up physically. Show up spiritually. Show up socially. Show, show up emotionally. Show up mentally. Give your best. Then you go home and go to sleep. And I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, sure. but I think just thinking from an educator's point of view and people listening to this and they're thinking, you know what, like when I wake up on that Tuesday, like I just, it takes a lot for me to get up and go. And that begs the question, am I doing what I really should be doing? And is this something that I'm missing? Do I not have this call to action or is it something that I can cultivate or mm. practice or, or kind of grow into? Because I think there are a lot of people who either go through phases or maybe they get into education and it, it doesn't click the way that they anticipated it to. And they think like, is this, is this kind of a lost cause yeah. or can I work on this and kind of develop this passion that I really need to stay healthy because it's such a demanding career? So. The answer to your questions are yes, and I love your I love your words. It is a call to action. This is a mission. Make no mistake about it. And what we know from the medical data, and I know we'll, we'll, we'll really elaborate on this in, in a future podcast when we talk about wellness and resiliency, but we know from the medical data, most Americans, this is unique to Americans, most Americans die of a heart attack Monday morning. <laughs> 
Isn't that interesting? Specific time, actually. 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. You know what's going on? Harvard Medical School researched, did a psychological autopsy of those deaths. They interviewed family, they interviewed friends, and they interviewed workmates. What's the number one cause of death in America? Heart attack. What's the number one cause of heart attack? Stress. What's behind the stress? You hit it. Here's, the, here's from Harvard. Lack of meaning and purpose in my life. I don't want to get up. I don't want to do this again. Can that be rekindled? Absolutely, yes. But it takes some deep soul searching. Now, we are blessed to work with Newman University offering the only master's degree in social emotional learning in this country. I'm so proud to be involved in that. That's, that's an embedded question in our work. Why are you showing up? If you don't love this, if it's not a call to action, if it's not a passion, if it's not a mission, if you're not involved in pure service, and this doesn't fire you from inside, then we've got some work to do. And I will tell you, I've been overjoyed. This year in particular, some older master's degree students, folks in their 50s, what a blessing to have them in our program. Folks in their 50s have come up to me and said, thank you. Thank Newman University for this program. I thought I was done. I was mailing it in. I was just going through the motions. And this course and this program have transformed me. I'm enthusiastic again. I'm passionate again. I'm innovative. I'm creating new lesson plans after 25 years in the classroom. And who benefits from that? Everybody. Teacher and student alike. So as we end this piece, this first part of building community is all about following these predictable stages and building relationship and building relevance within these predictable stages. When we come back again, it's the second piece of this developmental model. So as I'm looking at Charest's stage, predictable stages of group and classroom development, the question I asked myself was, well, how do I help somebody do that? How do I help a teacher, as you just asked, how do I help a teacher move through these stages to move from the polite stage where not much is going on to what, through why am I here, through shared leadership, to construction. I've now built a community to spirit. How do I help them do that? Well, in part two, we're going to look at I do that by developing deeper levels of relationship. Wonderful. Well, Tom, thank you again for taking the time to sit with me and talk through this. Um, I know that just from hearing the conversation between the two of us, it's already sparked a whole bunch of different things, which I'm hoping the people listening will, will resonate with. And um, I would encourage anyone who hears this to, to reach out if you have questions mm -hmm. about this so that uh, we can either explain um, something in more detail or give specific feedback to something. Um, but, you know, once again, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's always I, a pleasure, Michael. Thank I you really so much. I really look forward to the next one. Me too. Thanks, buddy. Take care.